Today we get to look at probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. How many of you have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan? How many of you have like heard of a Good Samaritan just in general? Have you ever been to the hospital, Good Samaritan? Okay, and you're still with us, that's positive. Anyway, I'll leave that where it, where it may be. The parable of the Good Samaritan, probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told. We'll talk about, again, some of the the cultural adaptations that have ensued because of this story. But let's start off by just reading the whole thing. I'll start at verse 25 and read all the way through. It's actually the parable, the story itself comes in the middle, um, but we'll get a little set up and then we'll get the story. So it says this uh, in verse 25, Luke 10. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. There's just so much in this story, but first of all, I want you to think about kind of what we've done with the idea of a good Samaritan in our culture. Again, we referenced the hospital. I did a quick Google search. At least 19 different hospitals in the United States call themselves Good Samaritan, right? I also, I mean, Google's like your favorite research assistant, right? So I I just Google like ministries with Good Samaritan in the title. All kinds of things pop up. And the best part is like there's some like religious types of ministries, parachurch organizations. There are some like pretty secular organizations that also feel free to call themselves Good Samaritan as well. Usually it has something to do with providing food, shelter, clothing, uh, providing financial resources, counseling, other kinds of assistance, all good things to um, people in need. And even when we talk about the idea of Good Samaritan, usually we're talking about somebody who has gone out of their way to do something good for somebody else, usually at like the expense of their own, you know, their, their own expense, right? You may be watching the news and you hear like the, the Good Samaritan stopped at the bank robbery, and you're thinking that guy was an idiot, but he was still a Good Samaritan, right? You're driving down the road and you see somebody off the side of the road with a flat tire. Somebody else pulls up beside him. Oh, what a Good Samaritan! They came and they took care of that person. Did you know there are even things called uh, Good Samaritan laws? How many of you knew that? Like there's 
Good, so Good Samaritan laws, you know, only in America, I guess, but Good Samaritan laws are to protect the people who go and do good things for people, to protect the Good Samaritans from getting litigation, from getting sued for their Good Samaritan work. So the idea would be like, you know, if, if, if one of us saw somebody like in a fiery car accident and jumped out of our car and pulled them out of the car and saved their life, but in the way we like ripped their designer jeans, they could come and sue us to repay for their designer's jeans. So they had to come up with Good Samaritan laws to protect the Good Samaritans because only in America would you sue a Good Samaritan, right? But the point with all of those cultural adaptations is this. Almost unequivocally, almost all the time that you see it used, somebody's actually taking it out of the context that I just read to you and totally distorting it to mean something that Jesus never actually intended it to, to really mean. Usually what happens is it's some sort of like a quasi-Christian emotional appeal to do nice things for people, to be a good person, to care about people. And, and usually the Good Samaritan is like the really good, nice, upstanding, like the hero. And what we miss is the intense shock value that occurred when Jesus originally told this story. Now what I want to do today is I want to unpack this story for us and help us to see it for what it really is. And some of that means that, you know, as we look at different stories in, in Scripture, especially when we're reading uh, the New Testament and some, some of these parables, is we realize these stories were told a couple thousand years ago in a culture very different from the culture that, that we live in. So we put on our, like, 21st century American glasses and read them. Man, we miss so much. So part of my job as a pastor and a preacher is to dig into some of that cultural context and pull that out because it just brightens up this picture. And for all of us who have seen and heard the story of the Good Samaritan, man, I hope that as we see some of these like cultural pieces and some of the like things that are going on behind the story, you'll see how incredible a storyteller Jesus is. You'll see maybe really the point of the story and to realize that Jesus is calling us to something far greater than be nice to your neighbors and like fix flat tires when you see it or you know, give the homeless person a dollar when you walk by them. There's so much more to the parable of the Good Samaritan than just that. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do something that they tell you in preaching classes never to do. I'll give you the point of the story right up front, because I want you to see the point of the story and then see if it bears it out, all right? So the point, the, the one big idea of the Good Samaritan is this. You can't love God and walk by people in need. You can't love God and just walk past people in need. And all the way at the end of the sermon, we'll do some application, and we'll say that doesn't just mean a guy with a sign who needs money. It doesn't just mean someone with a flat tire. We're talking physical needs. We're talking emotional needs, relationship needs, ultimately spiritual needs. But what we can't do is love God and seek to limit our love for other people. That's the idea behind the Good Samaritan. So now I'm going to try to prove it to you. Before I do that, I want to remind you very quickly of a couple of things I said last week. Okay? When we're reading these parables, we're reading short stories that illustrate shocking spiritual truths. Jesus is going to pull the pin on a hand grenade today. Okay? Shocking spiritual truths. Things that when you're, the original readers heard them, it was supposed to like shock them into like hearing and listening. All of these stories that Jesus told illuminate spiritual truth for people who want to hear spiritual truth, but they also hide spiritual truth from people who aren't interested. All of these stories are related to things related to the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is like they're, they're spiritual truths. 
it's again more than just a moral idea. Jesus isn't just legislating or teaching some vague morality, some quasi-Christian idea of what it means to be a good person. All of the parables, this one included, talk about what it means when God comes to rule and reign in your life, in your heart, on the earth. What does it look like when I accept the gospel and become a, a Christian and then I live? And they're also related to specific things in the context, and you'll see that specifically today. The last thing I said last week is what these stories do is that they kind of lower our defenses so that we, they can drive truth into our heart. Whereas if you came to church today and I just got down in your grill and started pointing my finger and yelling in your face and telling you how terrible you were and how bad a sinner you were, most of you would want to like put me in a chokehold, right? Right? Oh, yeah, maybe. Okay, right? But what these stories do is they kind of lower our defenses and help us to like think, like, could I relate to that or not? So I hope God will use this story in all of our lives to do the same thing. With that in mind, let's look at this story. Verses 25 through 29 kind of give us the context or like the setting. Um, the parable is in verses 30 to 35, but we need to understand the setting again. So we'll, we'll talk about that just a little bit. So verse 25 says again, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. I told the, the first service, like, we, we got a guy here at the church who's a lawyer, but he's on vacation. So I can say whatever I want about lawyers and we're going to be all right. Joel, if you're listening this morning in Florida, I'm sorry. No. Now, we really appreciate guys like Joel and, and people who are good, solid attorneys, because when you need them, you need them to be there for you, right? But when I read the word lawyer here, for some of you, you might be like, oh, wait, what? So let me tell you a little bit about like th these guys in the, uh, in the Bible and how they maybe are different than a modern attorney that you see on TV. Luke calls them lawyers. Some of the other gospels call them scribes. What these were were professionals at this. They were professionals at understanding, especially the first five books of the Bible. There were, were professionals at understanding the Old Testament and specifically the law. And a lawyer was a person that specifically, if you had a question about how to interpret the law, if you had a question about how to understand or how to apply like a certain thing in those crazy books of the Bi at the beginning of the Bible, you know, that have weird rules in them. If you're like, I don't get that. You went to the lawyers. You went to these men, and their express job was to know this so well that they could interpret it and tell you how to apply it. If two different people came and they were like, I think it means this, and I think it means this then the lawyer would render a judgment. They would listen and understand, and then they would render a judgment and say, this is how you interpret this rule. Now, because of that, they were part of the religious elite. These were the guys who everyone looked up to from a religious perspective. And remember, in that day, your religion and your politics and your social justice and all that was wrapped into one, okay? And so people looked up to these lawyers, these scribes. You hear them talked about throughout the new testament throughout the gospel accounts so they were part of the religious elite and people liked them and wanted to know them and, and be part of their whole thing one of the things that they were known for is that they were really known for legalism now when i say legalism most most of us today are like we react negatively to that right i do like i've told you before when i hear legalism and rules-based morality and, and people trying to legislate morality with rules i just really don't like that because jesus didn't like it but in that day, legalism was seen as really a good thing. And so for the religious people in that day, these men, these lawyers, were like the 
rule followers and the rule keepers and the rule understanders and the rule interpreters. And they were the rules guys. And this guy comes to talk to Jesus. It's interesting, he says that he stood up and called him teacher. Those are both respectful things in that culture. That when you wanted to address a teacher or a rabbi, you would stand up and you would talk to them in a respectful manner and you would start by calling them rabbi or teacher. And he does both, both of those things here. But notice what the text says was his motive or his intention behind the question that he asked Jesus. Now, he, he, just, he asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like a fair question. But why did he ask it? It says that he stood to question him that he might test him. He might put him to the test. Now, this is something that actually these religious folks were really known for doing in that day is asking questions and getting into debates and, and uh, posing different ideas and posing different scenarios to see how different teachers would react. And that was kind of like, I don't know if any of you are into like elk hunting, but do you know like at the rut season, the male elk, the bull elk, I think is what they call them. Do we have any hunters here that can confirm that? Yes? So then they go after each other and they spar with their horns and it's kind of cool. I've seen it on TV. It's really cool. That's what these guys were doing. They're sparring with each other. When Jesus, when this man stands up to put, put Jesus to the test, he's playing what we used to call seminary games. So I went to seminary. Pastor Lauren went to seminary. We've had some other guys. Jim went to seminary. Seminary games are when you go to lunch at seminary and you ask questions like, um, hey, so are you an infra-sub or super-lapsarian? Uh, do you believe in creationism or are you a traditionist? Are you a four-point Calvinist, a four-and-a-half, a five, or are you like a six-point Calvinist? Like, wait, I didn't even know there was a six-point, right? Seminary games, or this really happens, that guys would sit, sit around and see what big words that they could use and see what great arguments that they would come up with. They're religious questions with no spiritual point. We used to play those games all the time. You know what you're trying to do? You're trying to make yourself look smart. You're trying to make yourself look cool you're trying to make yourself look like you know more than the other guy it's just chess with the bible right you're just playing these games that's what's going on that's what i want you to see in this verse that you have a religious elite person who comes to jesus and he asks him a question what must i do to inherit eternal life and you realize you know what like this guy already had an answer to that he got paid for that like that's what everybody knew him for is he had the answers and he's asking jesus a question don't ask religious questions without real purpose. Can I just say that? Like, we don't want to be that church where everybody knows lots about the Bible, but they don't really obey the Bible, and we can talk all the big words and big terminology, but at the end of the day, like, it's just like build, we're like spiritual bobblehead dolls, right? Really big head, really small body, bobbles around and looks silly. We don't want to be spiritual bobbleheads. He asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus then says to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? This is the answer that any good rabbi in Jesus' day would have given. They just turn the question back around. Parents, you know this, right? Well, what do you think you should do? Well, what time do you think you should be home? Right? Like, you just turn the question back around to make them show their inadequacy. By the way, this was this guy's job. He, Jesus says, how do you read it? It's like, you're the one with all the answers here. Let's hear what you have to say. So verse 27, the lawyer, the religious leader, gives his answer. 
He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. Pop quiz. Okay? And the first service, they, they did pretty well. So, pressure's on. If that was a good answer, go thumbs up. If it was a bad answer, go thumbs down. Good answer? Let's see the thumbs. Bad answer? Okay. Look what Jesus says. Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered what? Correctly. Oh. He had the right answer. The religious guy with all of the knowledge and all the understanding and all the stuff. And you know why it was a good answer? Because Jesus had given that answer, right? Matthew 22 is actually a different time, a different instance in Matthew 22. But a lawyer, a religious leader, comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, and he's going to test him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This Deuteronomy 6 5, it's called the Shema. It's like one of the most important passages, even to this day, for Orthodox Jewish people. They teach it to their kids. They write it on their phylacteries, and they memorize it and know that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he throws in a little Leviticus 19.18, which says that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus had answered the question that way. As a matter of fact, some people say that's, that's a summation of the Ten Commandments, right? Commandments 1 through 4, love the Lord your God. Commandments 5 through 10, love your neighbor. It's the right answer, and people, religious people in that day knew. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Here's what you need to understand. You can have the right religious answers and still be dead wrong. Like, you can have all the right answers and still be wrong. Churches and Christians, especially, like, evangelical, uh, conservative evangelical churches, man, we pride ourselves on having the right answers, we pride ourselves on having our theological ducks in a row and making sure everything lines up and making sure that all of our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed and all that kind of stuff. You can have all the answers and be dead wrong. When Jesus tells him, do this and you will live, he's not proclaiming that he needs to like work his way to salvation. What he's saying is this, if you have the right answers, but the wrong attitude and the wrong actions, you're still dead wrong. Right answers with wrong actions and wrong attitudes still leads to spiritual death. Jesus was always about correcting this. That's why he got into it so many times with so many different religious leaders. Because at the end of the day, it was always about having the right answers and not having the right lifestyle, not the right heart attitude. And this teacher will then show, show us right to his heart in verse 29. But he, that's the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, desiring to make himself look right, desiring to make himself look good, desiring to pass the religious test, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, this is important because in that day, you, you know, I might come to you and say, hey, who's your neighbor? And you're like, well, this guy that lives beside me plays his music too loud. These people over here have too many cars parked in their driveway. Uh, that guy over there, he's pretty nice because they bring us stuff at Christmas every year, right? That's my neighbor. Well, in Jesus' day, they had actually made rules, laws, stipulation to really answer this question. If you haven't noticed, like, Jewish religious leaders in the New Testament were really good at making rules, right? They had rules about your neighbors. Who was my neighbor? Who wasn't my neighbor? And it kind of boiled down to this. For a Jewish person, other Jewish people were your neighbors, and then people who had converted to Judaism from the outside were your neighbors. Anyone else was considered a non-neighbor. 
Remember when Jesus is talking uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, you have heard it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And you're thinking, that doesn't sound like all biblical. It sounds a little Bible and a little not. Well, that was actually something that they had used in that day. That was a phrase that they used in that day to say we're to love our neighbors, love other Jewish people, and we're actually supposed to hate our enemies. And the thinking was, if there's a Gentile, like a non-Jew, someone who doesn't believe in God, if we love them, like we might be supporting them in their sin. So we would not want to do that, would we? Right? Like we give money to that homeless person, who knows what they're going to do with it? Right? We would not want to support that person in their sin. So they actually made this rule that was like, if they're your neighbors, you love them. If they're your enemies, you don't have, you, there are actually some crazy stuff that you can read that like if, if you, they walk by that person and they had fallen into a pit, they could help them out, but there was no obligation for that Jewish person to help that non-Jewish person out. And in some places, it was actually like encouraged that they wouldn't help that person out. So when the religious leader says, well, who's my neighbor? You know what he wants Jesus to tell him? He wants Jesus to say, well, your neighbor are the people that look just like you and sound just like you, and dress just like you, and have the same belief system as you. And then you know what that leader would say? Yes, I nailed it. I am crushing it. I love people that are just like me. I love people that dress and sound and talk and believe just like me. I'm nailing it. And then he would walk away. All of these other people had heard him talking to this new rabbi named Jesus, and he's justified in his own self-righteousness and his own good works. But instead, you know what Jesus does? He reaches into his little man purse, because Jesus carried one. We call it a satchel. I have one too, thank you. He pulls out a hand grenade, and he just bites the pin, spits it, lets the hammer go, and just tosses it right in there. He says, I got a little story to tell you. You're so self-righteous. Let me tell you a little story. So then in verses 30 to 35, in response to this guy's self-righteousness and his desire, again, to like say he loves God but limit his love for other people, Jesus says, I got a story to tell you. He says, there was a man. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Let me introduce you to the man in Jesus' story, first of all. And remember, this is a fictional story that Jesus is telling to tell a shocking, to illustrate a shocking spiritual truth. We don't know whether this man was Jewish or Gentile, and the ambiguity is intentional for a few different reasons. But the text doesn't specify. Most people would have been listening to this and probably would have assumed that he was Jewish, but lots of different people traveled the road that he was traveling. But he's just, in the story, a man who's traveling this road. What you need to know about this road, and you can still visit it today, um, there's a highway that runs, I think, parallel, at least alongside of it. It's a 17-mile road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's a 17-mile dirt path, essentially. Um, it's actually relatively very rural in that day when all you did was walk or ride an animal. It was, a long, it was about a day's journey or so. It's about a 3,000-plus foot elevation difference. That's why it always talks about when you leave Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem or you go up to Jerusalem. It's because of the difference in elevation. So they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this dirt path. Uh, along this dirt path, and you can even see it from Google Earth, there are, even today, there are caves and other like rocky outcroppings and boulders. And this was the perfect place where thieves would hide. And then jump out. And they didn't have, you know, like the Israel State Patrol or the Palestine, whatever, that could come and, you know, deal with the bad guys. And so 
this happened very frequently. I want you to see that this man was robbed by a group of robbers, and he was left for dead. And there's another detail in the text that's kind of important, and it says that they stripped him. So basically they took all of his outer clothes that would have been worth money. In that day, the way that you were treated by different groups of people, you can see it in the Middle East today as well, is you stayed close to your ethnicity and you stayed away from people who were not like you. There were two ways, usually, when people looked a lot like you to tell where they were from. I grew up in the state of Delaware. There's another state that's really close to Delaware, adjacent to Delaware. We call it the armpit of America. You know it as New Jersey. So when I went to college, you could always tell the Jersey boys. You know why? Because they had the Jersey boy accent. And we stayed far away from them because nothing good comes from Jersey. In that day, you could tell... I'm just kidding, by the way. If you're from Jersey or know somebody who is, we're cool. But in that day, one of the ways that you could tell about someone is you walked up and you talked to them. They may look like you, but if you talk to them, you could tell, are they like me or are they not like me? The other way that you could tell who that person was and whether you should associate with them or not was how they dressed. Different regions, different ethnicities intentionally dressed differently to be able to show who they were and who they weren't. This man is lying unconscious, so he can't speak or be talked to, and he's been stripped of all of his outer clothing. So the things that would show who he was and what his nationality was and whether somebody should approach him or not approach him are gone. Jesus is telling a story to say there's a person in need. There's a person in real need. Their nationality should be irrelevant. Their uh, ethnicity should be irrelevant. Their status. It's It's a person in need. Usually as we hear and we talk about this, the parable of the Good Samaritan, these first two guys that we're going to meet, the priest and the Levite, people kind of almost let them off the hook because it was like, well, they saw somebody who wasn't like them or they saw somebody who was dead and they could have been maybe contaminated by that person and so they left. There was a person in real need in front of them. The nationality shouldn't have mattered and ethnicity shouldn't have mattered. Their religious system wasn't part of the equation. There was a person in real need. The next verse we meet the next person. Verse 32, verse 31. Now by chance, isn't it funny that Jesus uses that word, chance? Wait, what? Jesus, you're God. Why did you say by chance? It just happened. This priest just happened to be coming down the... Now he's, he is painting an incredible picture. The master storyteller is at work. He says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him... He passed by on the other side. Now, this is, again, fun and interesting. It's something that we want to know about, like, the culture of that day. How many of you remember this as a kid in Sunday school? Like, you heard this story or you saw pictures of this story as a kid in Sunday school. The priest always walks by the man on the other side, doesn't he? But here's something you need to know that's like an integral little detail. Priests, like the lawyer, priests were part of the religious elite, Right? They descended from the tribe of Levi, the house of Aaron. These were the people who were allowed to represent God in front of the people in the temple. And they worked on two-week rotations. It was like the ROTC for priests, right? You went for your two weeks, you did your job, and then you went back home and waited until it was your turn again. And then you went back to Jerusalem and you did your job. This priest is probably coming back from doing his two weeks of temple service, and he's going back home to wait till it's his time again. Priests were wealthy, aristocratic, think, members of society they had money they had prestige they had fame these were the priests these were the guys here's as integral to the story priests didn't walk places priests rode animals from place to place especially when that 
place was 17 miles along a dangerous dirt path. Then number one probably didn't travel alone, but they rode, not walked. Why is that important? Because in a few minutes, we're going to see another character who was also riding. And that other character will use his animal for good, whereas the priest steers his animal on by. This would be akin to you seeing someone that you knew on the side of the road or seeing anyone on the side of the road in real desperate need. Not, not the hitchhiker, okay? Like the hitchhiker that looks a little crazy. Well, that's a different story. But this would be like us having the ability to help somebody and seeing that they really truly needed help and having the means to help them because we have a working car and just driving away. That's what the priest did. He had an animal, and he's on a 17-mile road, and there's a man in desperate need of medical care. He could have gotten off of his animal, picked the man up, put the man on his animal, whatever that animal was, and taken him. He had the means to care for him. Now let's talk about that thing that I said just a minute ago in reference with this whole clean and unclean idea, right? So we know that there were rules with regard to priests and Levites and those who worked in the temple and really Israelites in general about whether or not they were allowed to like approach or touch a dead body, somebody from another nationality. There were a variety of rules and laws. What I want you to also know, though, is that there is real ambiguity in the actual laws in the Bible as to what that person could or could not do. As a matter of fact, some scholars would argue strongly that the rules that God had in his word were rules that would pre- make that priest responsible to go and help this man. That when he actually left and went the other way, he was actually obeying his own rule, but he was disobeying the law of God. And the reality in that is, and as we'll see in a minute with the Levite, that both of these guys had rules that allowed them, like they could get out of the way. They could circumvent this situation and say, well, our rules tell us that we can't do that. Look at the Levite, next verse. It says, likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You wonder what a Levite is. They're kind of like the uh, temple assistants. They're the guys that did all the dirty work in the temple, right? The priests came in and did their work, and the assistants did all the the dirty work and kind of made sure that things were taken care of. They also were of the tribe of Levi, but really, uh, they weren't seen as, as religiously prestigious in that day. But I think Jesus includes both of these two men for a couple reasons. I want to tell you what they are. Like I said, they had religious rules. They could point to their rules and say, well, our rules say if I get more than like four feet from that dead body, like I'm going to be unclean. And I can't serve God the way that I'm supposed to serve God, so I better stay away. Right? That was one of their rules. One of their rules was like, well, that guy could be a Gentile, and if he's not one of us, and I get over there and I pick him up and put him on my animal, like I could be unclean, so ah. Did you know that religion frequently hinders compassion? I know, I, like I'm just going with all this like background and da-da-da-da-da, and you guys are starting to nod off, and then the next thing you know, the text just punches us in the throat with something, doesn't it? Right? But think about your life. Think about my life. Think about church life. Like how often do we put dollars, like budget money, and resources, and people, and time into play in church? And look, I love what's going on here. Y'all know that. I love what's going on here at this church. I want this to be a place where we come, we sit under God's word. But what can happen is that religion can hinder compassion, right? If we spend all of our money doing that, then we won't have it for this. Or if I spend all my time doing those other things, then I just, I submit that as, again, like a sub point here. That we never want playing church or superficial religion to hinder our real compassion for people. 
Like, if you come here today, and you're, like, in a place of, of confusion or wondering or you have spiritual questions or anything like that, like, I don't even want, the, like, all the stuff that's going on here by way of church to get in the way of somebody showing you some compassion. It might just be you need somebody to pray for you. Like, we want to be here to do that. These guys let religion hinder their compassion. I also think that, that Jesus intentionally put a couple people groups into this story. And we haven't even gotten to the, the good part yet, by the way right you got robbers those are bad dudes and then you've got two religious guys those are supposed to be the good dudes right in people's minds the robbers those are the people that are far from god they're the rebellious people and you've got the priest and the levite those are the people that allegedly are supposed to be close to god those are the good guys right and jesus says you have both rebellious people and religious people and guess what they both are those are two types of bad people, aren't they? You can have rebellious people, bad people. You can have religious people that are bad people. Both of them are bad people. So let us not think that because we are religious people that we are good people. If our religion is only outward religion, if our religion is only show up at church on Sunday, we might fall into the camp of these guys. Jesus is intentionally doing that. Why? Because as church people, it's really easy to look at those other guys. Ah, I can't believe that those guys aren't in church on Sunday. You know, you drive by your neighbor. You drive by the soccer field. You're like, look at those pagans playing soccer. They should be at church. Bad guys, re rebellious people. Meanwhile, you cut three people off on the way to church, give somebody the finger, cut off a guy in the coffee line, take the last donut, and you're like, look at me. I'm here to serve the Lord. <laughs> Religious people, both bad people. Put the donut back. But the, the, the rebellious people are, are guilty of sins of commission. They do bad stuff. They're rebellious and they do bad stuff. But you know what? The religious people are, are guilty of sins of omission. There's a lot of good stuff that they should have been doing and they weren't doing. Guess what? Two types of bad people, two types of bad actions. Both bad. We don't want to be either of those. That's why we go to the next figure in the story. Verse 33. And again, that hand grenades out. You're counting down three, two, what do you got, three seconds, Mark, on those, right? Three, two, one, and then here it goes. It's just going to blow up all over the place, and shrapnel is going to go flying. But a, okay, stop for just a second. You got to know this. Back in the day, they had these stories. Like, outside of the Bible, there were lots of these stories that started out for Jewish people that started out like, the priest went and did this thing, and he it was the wrong thing. And the Levite went and did this thing, and it was the wrong thing. And then there would be a third character. And it was always just like a Jewish, normal Jewish guy, like the Jewish farmer. Then, dot, 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 right? The Jewish fisherman, dot, dot, dot. So, so they would tell these stories that were meant to, like, prove a point. And they would say, the priest didn't do the right thing, the Levite. But then they would always come down to, like, the normal Jewish guy did the right thing. So when the lawyer is hearing this story that Jesus is telling, he's, he kind of knows where it's going. All right, Jesus is going to tell me it was just the regular old religious guy, right? Just the guy that makes coffee that comes in and does the right thing. The pastor was a total idiot. The deacon was a knucklehead. And then the guy that cleans the bathrooms came in and did the right thing. But Jesus blows them apart by saying, but a Samaritan. Boom! 
Now, I've talked to you about Samaritans before. I'm not going to bore you to tears. You know that, that Jews and Samaritans get, didn't get along with each other, that uh, you had Galilee and you had Judea, and Samaria was right there in the middle in the geography of Palestine in that day, and that the Samaritans um, had been guilty of intermarriage with other lands, and there's a whole history of that that starts in, in the Old Testament but they had been guilty of intermarriage. They took the Jewish religion and just like kind of twisted and contorted it. You can think like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, right? They took pieces of it and they had kind of the same language, but it was something totally different. So Jewish people were really angry about that. And many things like that. Um, They thought that the place of worship was not where Jewish people thought it was. In fact, when Jesus was a boy, Samaritans, some Samaritans came into the temple uh, during their like holy week and desecrated the temple so that the Jews couldn't offer sacrifices at the temple when you're during their, during their holy week time. Massive animosity between these two groups, okay? I am a child of the 80s and 90s, and I remember growing up, and the big gang warfare was the Bloods and the Crips. Does anybody remember that at all? Like three, four people, the Bloods and the Crips, and right, I listened to rap music when I was a kid. It was Christian rap, but still. Okay, sorry, right? It was always the Bloods and the Crips, and they were fighting, and they were at each other, and they were killing each other, and somebody was shooting somebody and all that. When you think of Samaritans, you think of Bloods and Crips, and I realize we have a variety of ages in this group, so I told the other group, if, if Bloods and Crips don't do it for you, maybe you need something a little earlier. Think about the Hatfields and the McCoys. You remember them? Not as much. See, the first service, I said that, and they cracked up. That's because they're all the oldies, I'm just saying, right? But you have this intense rivalry. Those are kind of comical, but you think about Israelis and Palestinians today, right? Like the intense hatred between those two groups. That was Jewish people and Samaritans. Jewish people hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jewish people. In fact, some of their rules and their laws were pretty explicit on how you treated each other and the way that you wanted that person to end up. So when Jesus throws that bombshell, it gets everybody's attention. It shocks everybody together. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. Notice that all three of the men saw the problem. But only one actually saw, didn't they? Two men saw and went the other way. The third man sees, and it says he has compassion. And this is a really cool word in the original language. The word is splunkna. Doesn't that sound cool? You guys want to try it? The first service wouldn't try it. Let's try it. Ready? Three, two, one. Splunkna. Now, Greek has these different words that like, they sound like what they mean, and this is one of them. And splunkna means you have a gut-level reaction. So some of you, when you said that, you were like, oh, that was breakfast. That was a little weird, right? <laughs> Keep it down. But splunkna meant to have a gut-level reaction to something. It meant that the two guys who came, the religious guys, came and saw that, and they just saw a problem. They just saw something that was a hindrance, something that was like, this is going to cost too much money, this is going to take too much time, this is going to be a real problem. But the Samaritan, the bad guy in the story, comes in and he has splunk, and he has compassion, a gut-level response where he's like, I have to act, I have to do something. How he acts is so important. And what you're going to see, actually, is that when the Samaritan acts... He actually reverses the faults of all three of the other groups. Let me show you what I mean. It says, The Samaritan, as he journeyed, had compassion. Verse 34, 
he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, oil and wine in that day, you used oil like you use that like lotion now when my kids get a cut or a burn and you have like the magic lotion you put on and it makes everything better. It's like a wet washcloth, right? Just put a washcloth on it. So oil they used to, as a salve for wounds. They used it for cooking. They used it for a variety of different things. So he uses it as, as a salve for, the, salve for the wound. And then the wine, they would carry wine because that's what they had to drink when the water wasn't, they couldn't drink the water without getting sick. But the wine was, was also, um, you, you poured it on there, it killed the germs, right? Like an antiseptic type of thing. But here's another interesting point that Jesus is making. Oil and wine were also prominent in the temple sacrifices. The person who was typically in charge of making sure that the oil and the wine were there and were full and needed to be there was the temple assistant or the Levite. The text doesn't tell us, but you could surmise that that Levite who walked up and saw him and walked by had oil and wine available and could have done what the Samaritan did, chose not to. The Samaritan used his oil and wine to solve the wounds. Then the next thing that the Samaritan does, it says that he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The priest, as we've already surmised, had an animal as well, could have done what he did. So the Samaritan now makes up for the faults of both the Levite and the priest. And then it says, verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back where the robbers beat and abused and abandoned and left the man for dead, the Samaritan cares for him, pays for his things, and promises to return. You see, in this story, there's a, there's a coming full circle that the one who was supposed to be the shocking outsider actually does what the other three were supposed to do and couldn't do. And what Jesus is intentionally doing is showing this religious person, this lawyer, who said, who is my neighbor? that the question should be something very different. So then in verse 36 and 37, Jesus kind of gives them the conclusion and calls for the question. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Notice that when the lawyer asked the question, the lawyer said, who is, who is my neighbor? When Jesus restates the question, he says, it's not about who is my neighbor, but who do I need to be a neighbor to, Right? It's not about looking around and saying, well, those people are my neighbors, but I don't like that guy. He's not my neighbor. Those people look and act and believe a lot like me, so they're my neighbors. But those people, very different. Like, they fly different flags, and I'm not excited about that. They're not my neighbor. And Jesus says, no, it's about looking at everybody and saying, who needs me to be a neighbor to them? Like, at the end of the day, we're not trying to limit our love. We're trying to show the love of Christ. You can't love God and limit your love for people. To this religious leader who had asked some interesting questions. He had asked this question like, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, it's not about what I do, but it's what kind of person are you? What's your heart like? He's like, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you have to be like the merciful Samaritan, not the calloused religious guy. Jesus was showing a lost religious leader just how lost he really was. Jesus was breaking down the religious barrier. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus was always combating lifeless religion. That the biggest challenge that Jesus faced from other people in his earthly ministry was not atheism. It was lifeless religion. 
And the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus breaking down lifeless religion who would try to limit who we love, who we care for. At the end of the day, this is just another example of Jesus saying it's not enough to have the right answers. I like what one old commentator from like the 1950s said. He said this. He said, this parable exposes any religion that has a mania for creeds and an anemia for deeds. Think about that, right? In this parable, Jesus is exposing any religion that's like really excited about having all the right answers, a mania for creeds. I know all the answers. But then an anemia for deeds. The former is important. This is where like as... Like, conservative evangelicals, we say, like, the creeds are really important. The inerrancy and authority of Scripture, like, doctrine is important and vital, but not by itself. That it should be moving us to action, just like it should have been moving those religious leaders in that day. So, in conclusion this morning, like, here's the main point. You can't love God and walk past people in need. Said a different way, you cannot love God and limit your love of people. And we only have about one minute left to think about, like, how does that look as we apply it? And, and I, I want to say this, like, I realize that like, we live in a world of, like, scams and con artists. We live in a world of emotionally needy people. We live in a world where sometimes, like, boundaries are necessary. The way that we apply this is important. But the story is supposed to help us to understand that I can't see somebody who's really in emotional need and just walk away. I can't be the person who cares more about my religiosity and my religious look and my religious vibe than I do about people's physical needs, financial needs, emotional needs, relationship needs, spiritual needs. We need to be people who love other people enough to help meet their needs. In this story, the bad guy, the outcast, the Samaritan was the one that cared enough to do something. There's even a gospel connection in this story, right? What the story shows us, ultimately, is that salvation, in the parable, salvation comes to this man through a costly demonstration of unexpected love, right? A costly demonstration of unexpected love. You know what we call that? The gospel. A costly demonstration of unexpected love. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, came and took on human flesh, lived the perfect, sinless life, then died. You think that was costly? Died in our place for our sins on the cross. A costly demonstration. And he did it out of love. And at the end of the day, we follow the good parable of the Good Samaritan because our hearts have been changed by the gospel. Like as a Christian, I need to have first have had my heart changed by the gospel so that then I have compassion for other people. If my heart's been changed by the gospel, guess what will be one of the results? Compassion for other people. So I'm going to leave you with that question this morning. Like, who needs you to be a neighbor to them? Who needs you to not walk past them? Who needs you, or who needs me, or who needs us as a church to show, like, real compassion for people in need? And let's let the gospel of Jesus compel us to do that. One of the ways that, again, you can continue to think through it on your own, there's resources online, a sermon supplement. You can uh, download that right from our homepage. 
and think through, like, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to my own life or to our own family? Um, because I can't do all of that from the stage. But God wants to change our hearts in relation to that. Okay? I'm going to have you stand with me. We're going to pray and then get you out of here. Father, again, we're thankful for the opportunity to read and study your word, and I pray that you would challenge us with it. God, as we uh, expose ourselves to your word, uh, it shows us, should show each of us places where we need to continue to uh, just really, first of all, I guess to trust you, um, to repent of the, the messed up things, um, to repent of the bad attitudes, repent of the uh, frustrations that we may have with people at different times, um, to repent of our sin, and then turn to you and continue to do that regularly. So God, would you expose us to the place where we've been the religious lawyer in this story and help us to see the importance of like the, the Samaritan, um, not walking past people, not limiting our love for people, but really truly looking for how we can help people in a variety of different needs. In Jesus' name, amen.